So good morning um, and welcome to Sunday School at Faith Baptist Church. So this semester, Pastor Will and I are teaching through D.A. Carson's Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. So last week, Pastor Will taught on chapter two, um, which was entitled A Framework of Prayer. And this week we'll cover chapter three, entitled Worthy Petitions, Worthy Petitions. In this chapter, we'll look through 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll look at verse 11 and 12. <clears throat> and as we look at these verses, we want to ask ourselves, what kind of petition should we present to God? How is the Spirit leading Paul to pray for other Christians? If we are grateful for signs of grace, which we'll talked about last week, if we're grateful for signs of grace and want to live with eternity and view, what kind of things should we pray for each other? So first we'll look at Paul's petitions, then we'll look at the goal of Paul's petitions, and then we'll talk about the ground of Paul's prayer. So first let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll just read verses, uh, verse 3 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll go ahead and read it for us, and you can listen or you can follow along in your scriptures. Starting at verse 3, it says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you and to grant relief to you who were afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in all the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11, which we'll be focusing on this morning, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy word. So as we look at these verses, specifically verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, we want to think through how we should be praying for ourselves and how we should be praying for one another. So in verse 11, verses 11 and 12, we see two petitions. The first is that Paul prayed that God would make these Christians worthy of their calling. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of this calling. So what does it mean to ask that God would make another Christian worthy of their calling? When we pray this for each other, we are praying that we live up to God's standard 
or rather I should say, are we praying that we should live up to God's standard so that we finally become worthy of salvation? Is that the idea that Paul has in mind here, that we're praying for each other? I pray that this person becomes worthy of the salvation that you've given them. Is that what Paul is doing here? No, it's not. In Paul's letter, in his other letters, the call or calling of God is always effectual. Those who are called are effectually saved. They're not trying to be saved. So when Paul says, to this end we always pray for you, that God would make you worthy of his calling, he's praying for those who are called. Not that they try to become worthy, but that they are called and saved. Romans 8, 29 to 30. So like I said, be ready to flip since our PowerPoint is not working. Romans 8, verses 29 to 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To those whom he predestined, he also called. To those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it's interesting that this language is past tense. He called, he justified, he glorified. So Paul doesn't think that we deserve election or the calling. That, that, that's not what he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 1.11. We can't deserve salvation. Paul is not praying that the Thessalonians would somehow become worthy enough to be called. Instead, since these Thessalonians are Christians, they have already been called. Paul is praying that they would live up to that calling. That's how he's sort of framing his prayer here. In other words, he's praying that they will live in a way that is consistent with the reality that they are new creatures. He's praying that they would live in a way that is pleasing to God who made them new creatures and in that way live a life worthy of the calling. So he's praying that they would live worthy of the calling of which they have been called his elect, his holy ones. I pray that they would live as those who are holy as you have called them to be. That's how Paul is praying there. And we see this type of language in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul is praying like this for them, that, that we should live in such a way that's consistent with our calling. None of us was worthy when we were called. Now, as those who have been called, we are becoming what we are not. So there's this process of progressive sanctification unto what we are called in Christ and will be. So we're, we're moving sort of on this trajectory towards what we are in Christ. <clears throat> we're becoming what we are not. We're becoming what we are called to be. And he prays like this for these Thessalonians. Now, judging by Paul's example in praying like this, it's clear that our highest concern in praying for ourselves or each other is not primarily that we become successful or wealthy or popular or 
even primarily healthy or beautiful. Um, it's not, his prayers aren't primarily based on um, external things. Not that those things are bad. Uh, we should pray for health. We should pray that if somebody needs a job, pray that the Lord would grant them a job. Um, a man ought to work. Uh, but those aren't Paul's primary uh, goals when he's praying. Paul's prayers are built on a foundation. And the foundation is, I pray that they would look more like Christ. He's praying with the aim of our Christ-likeness. He's praying that we're further conformed to the image of Christ. He knows what God has called Christians to be, and so he prays for them in light of their calling, which is holiness. He's praying for their holiness. He prays for more signs of grace that he already thanked God for, and he prays with eternity in view. <clears throat> so he's praying prayers of um, deep substance for these Christians. Um, my family and I, when we make grocery runs to the store, and I tell my kids, we're going to Publix, they know that <clears throat> when we're going to Publix, they can get a cookie. So they don't really care about anything else. The whole ride there, they're saying, Daddy, are we going to get a cookie? And this is like the 12th time they asked me, yes, Caden, we're going to get a cookie. Sarai, Daddy, want to get a cookie? <laughs> it's like this game for them. And I'm just like, relax, we'll get the cookies. But they know if, if, if I didn't feed my children for a whole day and they were starving, they know that when we get to Publix, there's cookies there. So that's all that they want. They don't realize that they need more than chocolate chip cookies to be healthy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Some of us live in this way. We just eat cookies all the time. <laughs> but they don't realize that they need more than cookies. They need something of substance for their own health. And it's the same with prayer. When we pray for one another, we want to consider what can I pray for this other Christian that is of substance? What can I pray for them that's going to be soul-sustaining. Again, not that prayers for a job or health are bad, but we want to think deeply when we think about our brothers and sisters and how we can pray for them. We want to consider their Christ-likeness. <clears throat> how can we pray for each other's souls in a way that is good for um, our spiritual well-being? So when my kids grow up, eventually, <laughs> They'll realize that they need more than cookies. And they'll, when they grow up, hopefully buy meat and vegetables and all those other things that we need. And the Bible talks about Christians and says that we are to grow up into spiritual maturity. I'll put it like that. We are to grow up into Christian maturity. Ephesians 4.12 says that Christians, through Christ's gifts, are being equipped for the building up of the body until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So scripture recognizes with Christians this growth in their maturity. It recognizes that we ought to, three years from now, Lord willing, be further along than we are now, even if it's little by little. And so we pray like that for one another, for our Christian maturity. So let's think about 
this and try to apply this um, in, in different ways. Let's consider um, or think about a brother and sister who, uh, who may be sick. How can we pray for them in a way that's consistent with scripture and in a way that's aimed at the health of their souls? So think about a brother and sister who are sick. Just how could we pray for them in a way that's consistent with the word and aimed at the health of their souls? Just throw out some, some ways that we can pray for them. Yeah, amen. Yep. Right. Amen. Amen. So strengthening their faith through their sickness um, as they read the word and meditate on scripture. Absolutely. Anything else come to mind? Norm? Amen. That's, a, that's an excellent prayer. Yep. Developing perseverance, although the circumstances may not change, um, they may remain sick. Guarding against temptation during your illness. Yeah. Amen. That is, that's a very good and practical prayer. Um, we've all been sick, and we realize that when we're sick, we're not as, usually not as aware spiritually of the guarding of our souls. We're tired, we're hungry, we're sleepy, and so we're just a little less um, diligent. I know I've experienced that in my own life when I'm sick. I'm just Maybe I don't feel like reaching for the Bible. Maybe I just don't feel like talking to anybody. Like, don't talk to me. Just let me get some Theraflu so I can sleep. And at times, we do need to pray that we would guard or be guarded against temptation. Absolutely. What about another scenario? Um, let's say we have a son or daughter or cousin or friend who's going off to college. How can we pray for them in a way that's consistent with Scripture and in a way that's aimed at their soul's nourishment and health? Throw out some thoughts. Norm? Yeah, amen. Yep. What else? Yeah. Yep. That the Lord regards them from temptation and maybe an environment that they're not used to. Maybe they've been exposed to some things that they haven't been before. Yep. Go ahead, brother. Amen. Yep, that the Lord was stirring them a desire to pro proclaim and preach the word. Yep, yep. You can pray that they do well in school and get A's. My niece just went off to college. Um, I pray for her that the Lord would cause her to be diligent in her studies to do well. But more than that, I do pray that the Lord would give her a community of Christians, uh, that she would find a good Bible teaching church so that whatever the circumstances are, whether she does well in her academics or does not, whether, she, whether there's temptation around her or is not, that the Lord would sustain her soul's hope in the gospel and her Christian spirituality. <clears throat> Amen. Yep. Spiritual discernment. Forrest? That when they hear the world be teaching, they mm. immediately take it through the grid, yeah. the word, right. and that would let them see the truth. Is true, and yeah. See the difference between truth and error. Yeah, amen. That's good. That's good. <clears throat> so, Paul, when he prays, seems to think deeply about the man and his relation to God. He is constantly praying that we become what and who we are in Christ. That's how he prays for these Thessalonians. 
He's praying that our gradual sanctification looks more and more like our current position in Christ as a holy people. That means that we become more holy, more self-denying, more loving, more full of integrity, increasing in the knowledge of God and his word as we are more and more joyfully trusting and obeying our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> okay, now let's think about another aspect of Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. So in the second part of verse 11 in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul prays that God by his power might bring to fruition each Christian's good faith prompted purposes. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says, to this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So what is Paul praying here? <clears throat> in Philippians 2.13, it says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But here, Paul seems to be praying that God would empower us in our desires. Now, if you're counseling a brother and sister and they ask you to pray for them and you bow your head and you say, God, I pray that you would fulfill their desires to do good. They may think that that's an incomplete prayer. That may be strange to them. We don't usually pray for each other in this way. I don't usually pray for people in that way. People usually don't pray for me <coughs> in that way. But I think we should pray for each other in this way. It shouldn't make us uncomfortable if we understand Paul's theology in the context of this verse. When Paul prays this way, he's presupposing something. He prays, Lord, I pray that you would fulfill their desires to do good. Something is informing that prayer. He's assuming that something has already happened in your heart that will affect your desires. He presupposes that God's people have been transformed through regeneration to the point that their actual desires are changed, that they develop new desires, desires for goodness and works that are prompted by faith. So we know from Paul's other writings and prayers that it is the work of God in the Thessalonians. That's what he's giving God thanks for. That's what he has in mind. And so Paul is praying that God would fulfill every good resolve that they have and every work of faith that they desire for his glory. So <clears throat> when we think about good works, um, as a Calvinistic Reformed Baptist church, we sort of have an, uh, an allergy to good works. We hear works and we say, no, no, no. <laughs> We're not saved by works. <laughs> Whether the person's talking about that or not, we just sort of reply and respond in that way. But good works are a good thing when they're worked out through the Spirit. And good works are a good thing when they're on the right side of regeneration, right? So we're not, we say we're saved by works, that's a problem. But if we are saved and because we're saved, good works are happening by the Spirit, we ought to pray that for each other and thank the Lord for it when we see it. It's a good and God-glorifying thing. <clears throat> Ephesians 2.10 says, Many of you may probably know this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. So praying like this is completely consistent with the Bible. These good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruit and evidence of true and living faith. In chapter 16 on good works, uh, in paragraph 3 of the 1689, it says this, Their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. To enable them to do good works, they need, in addition to the graces that that they have already received, an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do his good pleasure. So there's a recognition here that good works that are pleasing to the Lord happen by the Spirit, and they are good and they are pleasing to God. And we should pray for each other that God would fulfill our good, um, Spirit-led, Bible-informed plans. Uh, Those plans that are God-honoring and obedient to God's commands. So plans and desires like these have been regenerated or generated by what Paul calls goodness and faith. At this point, uh, Paul prays that God will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, assuming that Christians will develop wholesome and spiritually minded purposes, Paul prays that God himself may take these purposes that they have, that are good, and that he would um, allow them to come to fruition or be fulfilled. So he prays those desires that you have that are good, pray that God would fulfill every good resolve that you have to glorify him. He actually prays that God would propel and push along and carry along to fulfillment good and God-honoring desires. And again, this, it may or may not sound foreign, but we should ask ourselves, is this how I pray for my brother or my sister? I hear that they have a desire to do something that the Bible would stand behind and underneath. Do I pray, Lord, please help that, cause that to come to pass, cause that to come to fulfillment, cause that to happen so that they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So again, Let's think about this in a way that's practical as we consider our brothers and sisters. This is what Hebrews 10.24 talks about, how to stir one another on to love and to good works. We do that through prayer. So maybe um, your work schedule is inconsistent um, and it just doesn't allow you to do certain things that you would want to do. Maybe one of the things you want to do is uh, join those who go out on Saturday mornings to UCF to evangelize in other areas. Um, And that's something you desire to do, and you say, hey, brother, can you pray for me in this way? Pray for the brother. Pray that there's a shift in his schedule so that he's able to do that. That's a good and (coughs) God-honoring prayer, (coughs) so long as he's not skipping work to do it. And that would be um, wrong. <clears throat> Maybe you have a strong um, presence in your, or you want a stronger presence in your community so that you can share the gospel with people. You want to invite your neighbor to dinner. Um, you're sort of timid, not really sure where to start with that. Ask for prayer. Prayer that God gives you wisdom and boldness 
so that you can approach that neighbor, approach that um, person across the hall or down the street to ask them maybe to come over for dinner and that God would give you grace and the opportunity to share the gospel. Those are things that I think we should share with each other and pray for each other in that way. I think those are good God-honoring prayers. There are other things that may seem carnal and non-spiritual that I think are very spiritual and important for your sanctification. For example, maybe Sunday mornings are really hard for you because you can't seem to get out of the house with with breakfast, on time and with breakfast. That's a challenge. (laughs) With three kids, it's it's hard. (laughs) Maybe that's a prayer. And Chick-fil-A is closed on the Lord's Day. Honoring the Lord's Day. (laughs) Maybe that's a struggle you have. So when you're sitting in, in service on Sunday morning, you're distracted from reading the word, from singing, from praying, from listening to the word preached, and your stomach becomes a distraction to your participation with the saints. That directly affects your spirituality. (laughs) Pray for it. Share this with your brothers and sisters. Pray for me that God would help me to be disciplined to get up in the morning. He would give me strength and energy so that I can get breakfast, get these kids ready, get to church. (laughs) That's a good God-honoring prayer. It may seem less spiritual or carnal, but it affects your Christian spirituality. We ought to pray in that way. With that being said, uh, the truth is, unless God is at work in us by his spirit, unless God empowers these good purposes of ours, they will not produce any lasting spiritual fruit. We're not powerful enough to change ourselves. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Uh, The principle there is pray. (laughs) Prayer, um, O'Housby, there's a theologian, pastor named O'Housby. That's his last name, at least. I don't remember his first name. But he said prayer is helplessness. This casting of a petition to the God from whom our help comes. Um, And we should recognize that as we pray for ourselves and one another. Okay, let's jump down to um, thinking about the goal of Paul's prayer. So we looked at those prayers, his two petitions in verse 11. Now let's look at the goal of Paul's prayer. So again, we've looked at Paul's petitions in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. But in verse 12, we see the goal of Paul's prayers. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we should be seeking the glory of the Lord Jesus in our prayers. For Paul, his concern is that Christians might be counted worthy of their calling and his desire that God might fulfill their good faith prompted purposes, although they are his concerns, they're not his ultimate, they're not the ultimate end of his concerns, I should say. Those are very important ends um, that he prays and things that we should pray for, but the ultimate end is that God is glorified through Jesus Christ as Christians grow and mature and become more fruitful. The Christian's whole desire at its best and highest 
is that Christ be praised, not us. Okay? When you think about it, when you think about sin at its root, and just thinking about prayer and maybe praying amiss, <clears throat> when you think about it, the root of sin is autonomy. It's self-government. We want to be the center of everything. We want to be our own God. <clears throat> D.A. Carson said that if we take a Christian service and think of such service as a vehicle that will make us central, we have domesticated Christian living and set it to serve a pagan cause. This is an area where we can be easily deceived, especially when we're pursuing goals and doing deeds that we feel are spiritual. When we serve each other at times in our hearts, we want the attention. So Paul prays that Christ would be glorified, not us. But we do recognize this. At times when we serve one another, we want the attention. We crave the glory. We want the recognition. Um, I was thinking about my upbringing. Um, and as kids growing up in South St. Pete, we had an aunt who came to live with us one time. And I was really young, so I can barely remember her being there. But I do remember uh, this one occasion where our aunt came to the front door and she's beating on the door. She's saying, let me in, give me my stuff, give me my stuff. And the crazy part is that she was asking for things that didn't even belong to her, things that she didn't own. And she's saying, give me my stuff. I think that when we are serving one another, at times when the glory is being given to Christ or to others, that's what we do at heart. We're saying, give me what's mine. Give me the attention. Give me the glory. We would never say that with our lips, but our service at times shows that to be true. Our hearts are craving the glory at times. <clears throat> when we're serving as Christians and the glory has been given to others, at times we crave what doesn't rightly belong to us. We want recognition. At other times, we're like quiet, trained thieves. We creep in the window, tiptoe through the bedroom to the living room, and quietly steal away some recognition. Uh, those are called passive self-seekers. Passive self-seekers. What does a passive-aggressive person who's greedy for recognition look like? While we're serving, we do things and make comments that draw attention to how much we don't want the attention. It's just false humility. <laughs> and false humility is just pride with fancy clothes. Same heart, same root. <clears throat> but Paul prayers, his prayer here, um, in the way that he prays, he recognizes the problem and he tells us the proper goal of his prayer. Paul says, I pray this, not that people think you're wonderful or a gifted Christian, or so that you gain a reputation of perseverance or spirituality, but so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Dion Morris said, it is that there may be such virtues or fruit bearing manifested in the believer's life that glory will accrue to him who is ultimately responsible for these virtues. 
So when we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, when we strive to serve one another, when we pray for one another, and the Lord uh, causes our um, God-honoring desires to be fulfilled, it is that Christ would be glorified, <clears throat> not ourselves. <clears throat> the second goal of the prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1.12 is that Paul seeks the glorification of believers. Paul seeks the glorification of believers. Now you, you'll say you just gave this whole scenario about how believers shouldn't be trying to get the glory and now you say Paul seeks the glorification of believers. That's a right way to, to think about this. Paul says, we pray this, <clears throat> that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Now this is not Paul moving from giving glory to Jesus to now saying we can pursue praise ourselves. That's not his aim. The Bible is consistent in its rightly aiming glory at God. Ephesians, not Ephesians, Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, this is my name, I will not yield my glory to another. So, what is Paul praying here when he prays that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him? <clears throat> There's a way to think about Christian glorification that is right and appropriate. The Bible tells us that everyone that God calls and justifies, in other words, everyone who is genuinely saved will be glorified. Romans 8.30 says, <clears throat> and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. I read that earlier. That means that one day Christians will be made perfect. One day they will enjoy resurrected bodies following after Jesus the first fruits of what they will be like. In other places in scripture, it tells us that we are being transformed into his image. We're actually being transformed into what we will be. Someone go to 2 Corinthians 3.18 and read that for us. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And whoever gets there, you can just start reading for us. Nice and loud so everyone can hear. And we, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Thank you. So we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. <clears throat> uh, there was a popular Fred Hammond song in the 90s called Glory to Glory. Uh, my mom would play it throughout the house on the weekends to get us up and get us sort of clean in the house. I won't sing it, but I think the song was based off of 2 Corinthians 3.18. Growing up, when we would sing this song in church, I always thought that it was related to blessings. I associate it with an increase of material blessings. So from the car you have now to a better car, from the job you have now to a better job, um, from the house you have now to a bigger house. You're going from glory to glory to glory to glory, right? <laughs> and that's how the song, glory to glory, it was just this repetition of glory to glory. And I never really understood what that meant. But this verse isn't talking about your finances being transformed. 
is talking about you being transformed. You're going from one degree of glory to another. <clears throat> First Corinthians 3.18 says, we all are being transformed into the same image. And so you see the corporate nature of this verse, not individualism, um, although individual spirituality is important, this verse says we all are being transformed. So there's this idea that we ought to keep in mind, I think, one another as we're praying and considering our mutual Christian growth and spirituality. Um, how can we pray this for us as we grow and are further transformed to the image of Christ? Every true believer is involved in the process of gradual, progressive sanctification. By the Spirit, we will experience continual growth throughout our life into increasing Christ-likeness. It's a moral and a spiritual transformation from one degree of glory to another. Believers are actually being progressively restored to greater and greater possession of the image of God, the image that was corrupted by the fall and Adam. So this, is, this isn't sort of hypothetical wishing. This is actually happening in the Christian. You're actually growing in your sanctification. I know it can be deeply discouraging when you look at yourself in certain areas and you consider three, four, five, however many years back, maybe two years back, maybe a month ago, and you're just so discouraged. You feel like you're looking at the same areas and you're sitting in the same areas. You keep doing the same thing with these desires that just don't seem to be rightly changing. But the scripture is clear that the Christian is growing in their sanctification. And we have that assurance because it's not us. If it's left up to us, yes. <laughs> We would be the same person, they agree, whoever that is. We would be the same person we were two years ago or four years ago or six years ago. But by the Spirit, because it's the Spirit working in us, we're actually being further transformed. Like it's a promise that we can see in the Bible. And so we should take courage that when we don't see growth how we want to see it, we know that there is growth. When we're struggling in some of the same areas, we can have assurance that the Spirit is sanctifying us to look more like Christ. We will be like him in the end, perfected, and we're moving unto that end. Right? So we can take courage in that. <clears throat> Philip Hughes said, the effect of continuous beholding is that we are continuously being transformed into the same image, that is, into the likeness of Christ, and increasingly so from glory to glory. In contrast to the glory seen on Moses' face, there is no prospect of our evangelical glory fading or diminishing, but only in its increasing more and more into the coming and person of the Lord of glory himself. We are being conformed and Christ is seeing to it that it happens. <clears throat> in our final glorification, we will be without sin, all sin and decay will be done away with, and we will enjoy perfection in God's unfaded presence. When Paul says that Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, it's not a glorification that takes away or takes anything away from the glory that belongs to Christ. 
Jesus is the one who makes our glorification possible. And our glorification itself means that, or it happens in such a way that brings Christ glory, right? So us being glorified in Christ is the spirit working that in us so that in our glorification, Christ is being glorified, right? This Christian sanctification is unto the glory of Christ. I'll put it that way. We are uh, rebellious, self-centered people by nature. Um, Now we can become children of God or have become children of God, increasingly mirroring his character and one day enjoying perfect or the perfect existence of the presence of the triune God. Now this is, this is not possible uh, through um, human strength, through will worship, through strength of our wills. Um, good vibes and conversations with the universe doesn't produce this. That's a trend that we're seeing in the culture right now. Everything is good vibes and I was talking to the universe. So talk to the universe and tell the universe to give you the job you want. No, it, it, just, it doesn't work like that. It, it just ends up being self-glory. It ends up being the God of self. You're telling the universe to tell you to give you what you want. You're the God, not, not even the universe. Uh, but that aside, that, that's an aside. That's not in my notes. I just wanted to say that because it's been getting on my nerves. God is God, and only through God do these things happen, only through the Spirit. This type of transformation of our very nature comes by virtue of the new covenant. It's only produced by the Holy Spirit as he applies the benefits of what Christ has accomplished to our account on our behalf and our sanctification. Christ is glorified, and he will receive the praise that is his due. Then, when we are glorified, and now, as we are being conformed to his likeness. And Paul's prayers, his theology of sanctification is tied to his eschatology. So he's thinking about the end as he's praying for the now, right? So this prayer that they would become what they are not, that they will become what they will be in the end. We are becoming what we will be like. When Paul prays this way in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, He's praying that the Christians in in Thessalonica would be more conformed to the image of Christ as they behold the glory of God to the end of their ultimate glorification when they are perfected in Christ. He's praying this. God transformed them into what you've promised that they will be, perfect and complete in Christ. So that's the goal of Paul's prayer, and it's a good and simple prayer that we should pray for each other. So we'll stop here for now, and then next week we'll look at the ground of Paul's prayer and consider some other ways that we can pray for ourselves and others. Okay? So let me close out and pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, You haven't abandoned us, but... God has spoken and you have given us your word that we would know you, um, know ourselves rightly as we know you and understand the world you have made. Lord, we thank you that we can read the Bible and look at prayers and scripture to inform how we pray for one another. I pray that you would sharpen our minds and our affections as we think about prayer, that our prayers would be filled and saturated with scripture these things which you have promised to do, which you carry 
out through the means of prayer. And so, Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself um, in our prayers as we are further sanctified. Um, may you bless us now as we go into uh, the sanctuary to hear the word preached, the word read, uh, the word sang as we sing together. Um, and may you glorify yourself in the midst of your congregation uh, for your glory and our good as we behold it. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>